Hey there, you're listening to Campfire, a podcast where we interview leaders imagining new ways to live. Our guests are building new cities and other ways to connect for creators, technologists, nomads, remote workers, and more. My name is Jackson Seeger, and I'm excited today to welcome Ashley Colby, who created the Rizoma Field School and is an expert in localism, agroecology, and craft economies. She also hosts a vibe podcast called Doomer Optimism. In today's episode, we chat about homesteading, homeschooling, and home economics. Ashley excels at knowing when to leverage tech and when to focus on simpler solutions that are more sustainable, perhaps more obvious for building and maintaining a home, even if we sometimes neglect how obvious they are. I'm also joined by Grin as co-host. He's served as Cabin's technical lead for the past six months. And his podcast is produced by Cabin, which is a group of internet friends building a network of modern villages. Right now, one of the best ways to get involved with Cabin is by hosting or attending a supper club, which you can learn more about at cabin.city. All right, on to the episode. Ashley Colby, welcome to Campfire. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super psyched to have you. We also have Grin from the Cabin team here as co-host. How are you doing, Grin? What's up, everyone? Really psyched to learn more about you, Ashley, and learn about all the different projects that you have your hands on you host a podcast called Duber Optimism, which I think we're also going to syndicate this episode on, which is exciting. But you're an author, you're a a school director and an environmental sociologist and so many other things. So happy to talk about Cabin as well throughout this pod, but would love if you just maybe give us the through line that connects your book, your pod, your school, your research all together. Like, What's the common thing that brings your career and your, your life together? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I would say Doomer Optimism is a good culmination of all this different kind of work. And it's a helpful phrase to help understand basically the kinds of stuff I'm interested in and why. And so the basic idea is I have some assumptions that there are crises happening. <laughs> Different environmental crises. I don't share such a, a doomery position on all these different kinds of crises, but I just am a sociologist. So I recognize that there are various issues going on, environmental, social, cultural, you know, crises of various institutions, civil society and economic, etc. So the idea is to sort of look clear-eyed at various crises. I'm really like kind of like a historical materialist Marxist type thinker in, in terms of thinking about big historical patterns, civilizations rise and fall, what period are we in and whatever civilizational cycle. And then looking clear-eyed at the various crises or whatever period we're in in, in a civilizational cycle, how do you thrive in that particular instance? And so Doomer optimism is an exploration of that. And there's not just one answer. There's It's a very pluralistic, both sense of doom and sense of optimism. And a lot of people's doom informs their optimism. And then the, the field school, I personally, my sort of doomer optimism is worry about energy. I worry about a sort of cultural lacking of robust neighborly civil society culture. Too much outgroup signaling, too much demonizing of the other and so I'm interested in those sort of cultural things and then environmental issues I'm concerned with. And I'm concerned with climate, but I'm also frustrated that climate has taken the stage over other environmental issues. So I think a lot about food systems. My field school, we work with small scale farmers and I sort of think like small scale appropriate technology, 
these people who kind of meld the most sustainable cultures of the past with modern technology and materials in a way that's like really humane and, and meaningful and human skilled. That to me is the focus of the field school. It's like as much exposure as we can get to that kind of thinking, that's this melding of the appropriate sustainable technology of the past with modern people, modern thinking, that to me is the sweet spot of optimism. But that's not everybody's optimism, but that's that's my particular interest. So yeah, and I'd be curious since we're cross-posting this and do more optimism, if you guys could tell me a little bit about the Cabin Project. Sure. I know much more about the recent version of Cabin than the older like historical origins of cabin so you might know that part better but today the way we frame it is cabin is building a network of modern villages which actually is kind of like what you're talking about right village is that sort of community life the living together being close with the people around you a localist version but also modern in the sense of technology innovation using the internet using new tools and how do we bring those two together the way it works now is we started out kind of as an online community, but then meeting people online, bringing people together for co-living, long-term co-living, short-term, month-long, week-long, creator residencies, cohort-based, like builder weeks, get together, build a sauna. This is something we've done at several locations now. And then to smaller events like supper clubs, like meeting your neighbors, like doing events at conferences or just hanging out online, you know, doing online events. And all of that comes together. You can take your pick. If you travel a lot, it might be nice to visit a bunch of different locations and meet people who you already know are kind of like you. If you don't, then you kind of stay more in one area, then it's a reason to bring together like-minded people to ultimately, hopefully, form a network city. Yeah, I agree with everything Grin said. And Ashley, you talk about these crises that inform changing patterns in how we might live together. And similarly, a lot of what we do on this podcast and in Cabin and what I do in my writing is look at how these macro trends are affecting how we live. And there's just a variety of demographic and climate and technological and cultural shifts that inform, I think, a lot of what Cabin is doing. And at the end of the day, like the internet is still so new relative to the length of humanity and how long you know we i i think intend to be around and the way that we coordinate how we live together is just getting started especially as it pertains to the internet and so as much as cabin can inform how we can build a new kind of city or a new kind of way that we communicate collaborate uh, govern with each other that's the kind of stuff that gets me really excited and so like on that note of trends or, or crises in informing how we live like are there any crises in particular that occupy a lot of your brain space what are the ones that uh, you you find yourself paying a lot of attention to yeah so this might be fun to dig into with you guys because i am quite doomery about the complexity of technological society for basic things to run and for example, something I rail on about that also combines with my worries about like environment and energy is like alternative energy systems. People's thinking tends to go, okay, so we have a grid and it's unsustainably sourced. So let's find a sustainable source for this super complex grid that we already have. So then we're going to, you know, like pull all these minerals, rare earth minerals or whatever we need for these solar panels and wind turbines and 
oh, well, let's not do the full life cycle analysis for like all the manufacturing that goes into this giant wind turbines at transport. And then when they're done, they can't be recycled. So sometimes they're just buried or sometimes there's even more diesel or fossil fuel energy spewed to rip them up and turn them into concrete, which is, I guess, what they're doing now. People just tend to think on these like massive scales for energy. And I worry a lot about like electricity costs going up super fast. I'm open to nuclear, but it takes a long time to get that infrastructure going. Also, it's really hard to electrify all the things we use fossil fuels for. But people don't think enough about like simple windmills, like water pump windmills. I had something in my house in Uruguay, a passive solar water heater, which is literally just a black box that the water sits in and the sun hits it. So it's not like the sun is hitting a panel that's then going to a system that turns it to electricity that then goes into a water heater running on electricity. It's literally just the sun heating the water up. And I feel like we're really silly as a society to first go to the most complex, hyperscaled systems and think like, how can we keep these things going? As opposed to thinking like, is there a way to scale these things down that's less complex and less prone to failure. So the thing that I'm most worried about is a lot of these complex systems have engineers running them that are increasingly retiring and not really training their replacements. And then a lot of these businesses are basically like, well, let's just see if we can train AI to run this stuff. And to me, this is like my doomsday scenario that we have like these super complex systems. No one knows how to run the computers take off and like, I don't know, fail to run them. And we have a whole group of people who like can't access basic water heating services, water, warmth and stuff like that, because they're, I guess, just sort of like people are just like reliant on these technological systems in the back of their mind and not thinking that much about what it really takes, what really goes into all of that. And like, when I talk to people who are in infrastructure, I have a, my brother-in-law does huge projects as like multimillionaire engineer for cities. And he's just, there's no one at the helm. There's nobody who is super confident. The people, confident people are just retiring more and more. And I'm so worried about these systems. Like when I talk to people who are actually in it, they're worried about them. So that's the kind of thing I, I get to worry about. That's really interesting inside. And I haven't had those conversations with people who work in that kind of infrastructure. And you have all of these really interesting tweets I, I noticed from the last few days, sort of expanding on what you mean there. You, you said recently that high-tech utopianism is a brain worm for NPCs or, or non-playable characters. I love that line. And so as you think about solutions or Im implement or like, you know, talking the talk and, and walking the walk for this, your Twitter bio shares this sort of triple threat of leaning into homeschooling, homesteading, and home economics. And so yeah, what are, what are some of the things that people can do at the atomic home level to minimize their energy costs and stay comfortable, but also to a family and grow and learn? Right. I just had a recording on Duber Optimism yesterday talking about this, and I just feel like there is a lot of the visions for the future that are super optimistic are also super high tech. And I just feel like there's this room for optimism that's ecologically interested, civil society interested, and then this more, not necessarily, the only way we move forward towards something more beautiful and positive in the future isn't necessarily like, well, let's just wait for something really cool technologically to be invented and then the future will be great. There are so many interesting ways to wrest power back from these hyperscale systems. 
in ways that are like really fun and make you feel extremely resilient and teach really important skills to yourself and kids. And so I think about things like just learning how to how to bake at home, how to source locally, all the home economic skills, like how to mend your own clothes. Like I was just saying this, a lot of people don't realize this. You can buy super high quality goods handmade by somebody if you're like a millionaire, or you could be extremely poor and make those things yourself. And it's actually the case that those two demographics have like beautiful handmade local super high quality food and goods. Those two, I mean, I know a bunch of my neighbors in Uruguay have as good of quality food as like millionaires I know who have to source them from those people who do that, you know. It is possible to access all of this quality goods, sovereignty, like ability to be resilient in the face of any kind of challenge like this. And not only that, I kind of think it's really fun. Like some of the smartest people I know are trying to do this kind of thing while also thinking, bringing forth historical lineage of sustainable societies from the past. So I'll give you an example. My favorite example from Doomer Optimism is this dude, Peter Allen, who's a PhD ecologist. And he was like, okay, I want to dedicate my life to ecological restoration. And the way they do ecological restoration now is this high tech thinking. So they literally just spray everything with Roundup to kill it or they burn it and then they try to put the seeds in of the plants that they want. Historically, the way the Native Americans managed ecosystems in North America was managed grazing or planned burns to keep bison populations in certain areas that then like built the topsoil. And he was like, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do that with cows. I'm gonna bring forth this Native American heritage of ecological stewardship but he does it with modern materials. It's sort of electrical fencing. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing. There's just so many little spaces in this kind of appropriate technology, resilience, civil society, environmental stewardship world that I think a lot of people are playing with, whether it's in the home or backyard food production, learning how to school your own kids or being involved in their schooling or schooling that they outside of, you know, they go to regular school and other education you do outside of schooling. So every aspect of these things, I just feel in general, we've sort of ceded power to consumer corporations and to the state. And we just think the state and the market will handle everything necessary for my life. And I'm just interested in inviting people into taking more ownership, I guess, over their own livelihoods. Yeah. It sounds like if you look at history, right, our history is about people kind of outsourcing more and more, right? Like it yeah. used to be you did everything yourself and then you slowly outsource more and then maybe kind of like the midwit me when you get all the way to the end, then you can afford to yeah. now buy the things you used to do yourself. Why is that? Why don't people just do it themselves? I think it's a product of industrial society. If you have such an abundant amount of energy, anytime you have excess energy in a system, and in the past it would be that excess energy with slaves, like they would do the work for you, they would be physically doing your work or be a burden. But with so much excess energy, like, of course, you're just going to outsource those things because it's easier to do so. But I, I just think on the flip side of that, it is easier but then there is a sense of where you're losing control over it. You are reliant on those systems to keep working for you to thrive. And also there tends, there ends up being, and this is surprising and like basically never happened in human history before because we never had this amount of excess energy, just this widespread malaise, like alienation, like I have nothing meaningful. I'm not doing anything practical. And so a lot of the early sociologists talked a lot about this with the industrial revolution, like people on factory lines. They were like, I feel automaton here. I have no control over 
the work that I'm doing. I'm just here hammering this thing on an assembly line over and over again. And nothing about it is coming from me, the work. It's not my idea. I'm just being told what to do and I might as well be a robot. And that's just kind of overscaled today now. And, you know, people do work, but I'll, there's a lot of bullshit jobs to cite David Graeber. Like there's, you know, a lot of work that people do is just kind of email jobs and stuff like that. So I think the homeschooling, home economics, localism, being involved in civic society is just an opportunity to bring meaning back in a way. I want to talk about each of those on their own and and sort of get Ashley's best tips and tricks. But before I ask those questions, and I'm sure Grin has follow-ups for each as well, a lot of our audience is consists of digital nomads or people who, who move around a lot. And the opportunity to homestead, to form some of these systems that I imagine need some level of commitment to a place or just time in a location. How would you advise nomads who are also aspiring homesteaders to think about their life? Yeah, this is a really cool question. So one thing I've always been interested in is like nomadism versus settled society. And actually, our most of human history, we were nomadic. And so we're basically wired to be nomadic more so than settled. And so I have a, a like place in my heart for nomadism. I think it's if you can do it right, it's, it can be a really meaningful way to live your life. And you'll learn a lot about I have a lot. I have a lot of parenting choices I made, basically trying to mimic hunter-gatherer parenting stuff, like you know, extended breastfeeding and baby wearing and co-sleeping and stuff like that. That's like a hunter-gatherer thing, but because I feel like that's actually what we're biologically wired for. So I guess in a historical sense, if a nomad would move through a landscape and maybe be going with a herd of animals, wild or domesticated, and, you know, gathering through the landscape. Now everything is private property. So you just need to be, in my opinion, thinking about who is, like, if you have this co-housing space that people are moving through, who who is, who is there, who is, like, at that, on that land, in that space, who is responsible for it despite the people moving through. And if you have somebody who's like a steward, who is there as a through line to pay attention to the overall caretaking of the land, even around, even like around buildings, the co-housing community, then the people moving through the co-housing can absolutely just pick up. If you are part of the community, you could pick up like, oh, okay, I'm going to do one little workshop while I'm here to learn how to do these things or to participate in the stewardship of this landscape. And I think Jason is my Doomer Optimism co-host and he and I have gone back and forth and he in particular has gone back and forth with Balaji on the network state idea. And his main critique is you need to be ecologically and culturally literate of the physical place you're in when you do these kind of things. And I'd be curious to hear you guys thinking a little bit about this for Cabin. Like a lot of times... If you, for example, have a gated community in some place, it's like we're gated off, we're walled off from local people. We don't care that much about ecology. We'll just, you know, blast this landscaping and do it all industrial scale. And Jason is like, you know, it's like a neo-colonial extractivist attitude. We're just going to make our little walled cities and not care that much about ecology. And there's a way to do it, I think, that is like, that is ecologically literate, that cares about a place, even if people are moving through. There's ways to accommodate that and mm -hmm. and then to not be 
also walled off from local culture. That's the one thing that I worry about with intentional communities or com planned communities at all is just integrate, you know, see what you can learn from local people. You're not going to be resilient making a sort of walled city of all newcomers in a, in a local place. You got to ask people their local knowledge and what works well here and, you know, where can I source things and, and that kind of thing. So having the humility to do that kind of thing, I think is really important. I saw Alchemist is on your list. And Ewan, wait, yeah, it's Ewan. He, he's been on the pod. He and I met in Colorado at a retreat. They have a great model. They have a super cool model going on where it's like, you know, there's a couple of people who are like sit on that place. They're stewarding it. They're kind of seeing a through line. And then they have workshops and people come through and they learn and they help. And there's these work days. There's totally a way to do it, but you do need to have some caretaker steward who's like, actually cares about the place and it's not just like we're just plopping it here and it doesn't really matter ecologically what's going on so for context for doomer optimism listeners and, and for, for campfire listeners as well if you don't know i love how you're speaking about this need for a steward or a caretaker we call each of the neighborhoods within cabin communities we, we call the person who manages that property the caretaker for the reasons that you say and all our neighborhoods are is that they have three things in common so they have great Wi-Fi for any remote workers. They have immediate access to nature out the front door, and there's a sense of community. It's not just like a place that's like a Airbnb in the woods. Like there is an intention to have community there. So Elk and Mist is one of those neighborhoods, and I think everything you said is exactly what we find to be important too. The challenge becomes: what if the caretakers want to travel too? And so you you do have to develop this culture at a neighborhood where it can become sustainable even if the, the caretaker is gone for a month or two months at a time. Grant, anything to add on sort of the points that Ashley was making there? Yeah, it sounds, yeah, when you talk about the gated community, it's kind of that like in the middle move to you know wall yourself off, kind of destroy what's there and build from scratch exactly what you want and then spend a lot of effort keeping it exactly that way which is not really how people used to do it, but still people somehow are choosing to do it. And you know, besides the fact that there's lots of abundant energy and resources to do it, it seems like maybe that's the first choice that comes to mind. Maybe it seems easier. Maybe it's like, you know, doing it the more authentic way is seems less fun, seems like more hard work. So like what's, it feels like what's missing is, is like valuing that or seeing maybe the long-term benefit of that, or even like in the moment, making it fun somehow to do it this more sustainable way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the doomer in me is just like, it could be, depending on how these complex systems play out, like it could be a matter of you having clean water and warmth and stuff. So that's a good motivating factor if you think that, but not everybody thinks that everybody thinks some people think, oh no, this stuff is fine. And you know, the systems will probably correct themselves if there's ever an issue. And I, I have like a, just a, prepper bent up just seeing enough around the world that most people around the world have a lot of these skills. It's really just the super hyper developed world where people don't have these skills to, in case of emergency, handle these things. Uh, but there also is like, yeah, there. I think probably a lot of these tech, digital nomad leaning communities just aren't necessarily aware of some of those things. And so therefore, they don't really value them. But if you get a few people in, like Elon, who 
do value them and want to show and want to bridge that gap, once you have these workshops, people love them. I mean, they love them. They have so much fun. Like they went and, and transplanted a bunch of willow by their riverbank, I think. And willows like sucks up a lot of water. And then that helps if you have any massive flooding events. All that, those willow plants will be sucking up that water and they'll eliminate more flooding. Like these kinds of things where you're building resilient, functioning ecosystems. And then you maybe you get into permaculture in one of these neighborhoods and start planting these long-term plants that like, okay, I put that in the ground and 10 years from now, like I'm going to have walnuts to eat from that, you know? And it's like this thing where you're building a legacy. I, I just think we have so much disposable thinking, like I'm going to come and go in this place. I don't really care what happens to it, but somehow people need to be bought in to longer term thinking, thinking like beyond their six week stay at the place. Do I actually care about this place? How can I see it how can I make it resilient through time? And so I'm curious for you guys, community-wise, I'm super interested in different models of intentional communities because I traveled quite a bit after college and before grad school and stayed in a bunch of different intentional communities around the world. And I have so much skepticism that they can be done well. <laughs> There's a few models I've seen that are like pretty straightforward that I think can pretty much succeed despite like cultural differences. But like, trying to figure out governance, trying to figure out how to be welcoming to families. This is something Grin and I were talking about. There's so many of these digital nomad, whatever cultures, and it's like 20 to 40 year olds, childless people, where are the kids? Okay. If you're going to have a society that recreates itself, there needs to be children. It needs to be welcoming to children and families somehow. And not all of them, obviously, but like some, you know, some communities have to have kids. So I'm curious about that. So I, I would love to dig into that cultural stuff with you guys. Sure. It is like a huge challenge to try to build a consistent culture and system of governance and economy across geographies. And we're about two and a half years old as an organization. And there's a lot that we've learned and a lot still to learn on that front. On the governance side, like we make decisions cryptographically, which has been very interesting. We govern a treasury of several million dollars through voting. And it's been really interesting because before Cabin, I spent my whole career in early stage tech and to see a new model for how an organization can operate with trade-offs on speed versus efficacy of decisions is, is very novel. And also like gets engagement from people everywhere. And I think that there's a lot we can still do, but we have successfully, I think, built a way to trial just a net new democratic way of making decisions. And that is directly proportionate to how involved someone is in the community. So the more someone is involved with Cabin, the more weight they carry when it comes to decision-making. On the cultural side, I think it's good for there to be different microcultures in different places. And the culture should actually be pretty authentic to the geography where any given neighborhood is. To your point, you know, get involved. Don't be this gated off community. Like I think that's especially true. We want to you know, not be a, a neo-colonialist entity. We want to blend and build with the communities that we're involved with. We do have these six guiding principles or obvious truths, the so-called, so that these are just things that we at Cabin like believe and like by sort of putting them into the the either attract people who also believe in them. So in no particular order, 
There's like two that are related to living in community that like we are our best selves when we live with people we admire and that we can find people online and gather in person. And then there's two that are about integrating with nature. So like touching grass is good for our well-being and regenerative local communities are the best store of value, which is very in line with, with what you're saying. And then create together. So creating means doing, like meaning like creations, this like feedback loop between ideas and actions and co-creation grows culture. So recognizing that yes, and in each other's ideas is just a net good thing. So those are some of the, the cultural components. Yeah. Better than we were in the past. I think the most important thing with the family stuff is having people who have kids be involved because then that's just something you're going to care about. I didn't care about any of the kids stuff before I had kids. And now that's very top of mind all the time. We did the same, same thing at Vibe Camp. The first Vibe Camp had like two babies. This most recent one had probably a dozen kids and that's where it starts. And then the next step after that is other people who are around see that there are children. They're like, oh, kids, weird. I haven't talked to a kid in years. For the, for most people, the first time they interact with children is when they have their own now. Right. It used to not be that way at all. Sadly, but yeah. Right. So we so at Vivecamp, people were like, oh, is it okay if I talk to your children? And then, and then they talk to them and then later on, they're like, wow, that was really cool. You know, Maybe I'll bring my kids next time or maybe whatever. So that's, I have kids. John just had a son six, eight weeks ago, something like that. And even the people on the team on the team or in the community who don't have kids, they're around kids, they're interested, not just kids, you know, parents also, full intergenerational. I brought my parents to Wild Camp. Oh, nice. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, they, they watch the kids. It's great. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. Like to me, I think part of it too is like it kind of goes along with the shorter term thinking or this disposable thinking. If these communities, it's like, all right, I'm going to go join this crypto intentional community in Costa Rica that just ends up being like this hedonistic you know, party fest where people are just like partying basically every day. And and then it's like, I don't know, I just feel like that's fine, but it's just, it's not sustainable in the sense of like, it's, you know, it's just a period of time you move on. It's just some place you choose to pay to go party. That's not like a life that you can live indefinitely, but trying to think legacy, not just with people and culture, but just like the landscape and all this kind of thing, just thinking longer term, you, you necessarily start thinking about kids. And then that kind of changes the whole culture of well actually what do we want to what do we want to teach kids like what do we want them to be exposed to what and it's got to be this more wholesome culture necessarily and then maybe you want kids to learn these basic skills and resilience and connection to nature and stewardship that necessarily comes from being in a place and having some sort of stewardship role so like a lot of cultural things shift once you start thinking about how to integrate intergenerationally and you can still have fun with parents of kids there, you know, but it's just like a, a wholesome kind of fun. We, I had, I had a kind of experimental event with like, it was like doomer optimism adjacent thinkers in Wyoming and kids were invited. It was like, I think three or four families brought their kids. And I think it was like 15 kids between them because everyone had a lot of kids. And, and it was awesome. I mean, it was awesome having the kids run around and everyone could still, you know, drink beers at the bar and the kids are playing in the library and running around and playing games. And I thought about this when I was traveling the world that like, for example, in Ireland, they have these pubs, which is like public houses and kids can go to those. And it actually kind of moderates the adults hedonism when the kids are around. You can still have fun, but you're bounded by some sense of responsibility and propriety. 
And I just think that's super important. And then once you start integrating families and they're the ones who are willing to try it out and be experimental, then other families see that it's a safe space for their kids, you know, and then it'll kind of pick up from there. Yeah, I love everything you're saying, Ashley. And so I'm 28. I don't don't have kids yet, but I think kids are really, really important for Cabin for all the reasons that you have shared, but especially because I think about my own childhood and like it was very happy and and good, but my parents worked for the government and I, I didn't really have exposure to many other careers that are possible other than like teacher because I would go to school. And so I think there are people I've met now as an adult who were really like engaged with their parents' friends' careers or would go in with their parents' friends to work for a day and and just got this broad exposure to the different many different ways that people could live. And I really want that for my kids to have multiple adult influences beyond just me. And so speaking of kids and learning, first I'd love to have you share what the Rizoma STEM is and then share more broadly what's the Rizoma Field School and then I want to kind of dig into each of the homesteading, home econ, and home schooling components. Yes. So Rizoma is just like the Rizoma Field School is just hosting these short study abroad trips for like seven to 14 days for college students. And the primary pedagogy is experiential learning. And it's really just in this kind of narrow band of working with agroecological producers. And a lot of times we do stuff like natural building, which is like basically building with bamboo, logs, mud, and straw. (laughs) And so the students love that. Basically, the subtext is I'm trying to teach that there's a different approach to ecology and sustainability. That's not necessarily the most high-tech solutionism, but instead to think about like environmental stewardship as a hands-on activity. And what does that what does that mean? And so that's all Rizoma is. It's a pretty narrow thing. It's just sort of like really important pedagogically, though. The students aren't just touring farms. They're doing something. So they come, they work alongside people who do small-scale food production or small-scale building. They do it with their own hands. They spend the day doing it. And then at night, we talk about like, what are they doing? Why are they building with these materials? Like, what did I see a lot of times the students, I'm a sociologist, so I'm always talking about social things. The students talk a lot about how the social connections work among the Uruguayans. For example, every time we have student groups, the people I'm, we're working with have family members come help. And they say something like, okay, you helped me install this culvert pipe on my driveway. And so I'm coming over and helping you. When you're here with the student group, the way the uncle will come by and pick up the niece while the parents are working in this kind of stuff where you just see the sort of unspoken, integrated community and how it works in practice for people who have to work with their hands during the day and also just having kids around, you know, these kind of things. So that's basically what Rizoma is and how it works. There's not like a like a STEM curriculum or anything. Why is it called Rizoma, though? Rizoma is a, a rhizome, the Spanish word for rhizome. And, and this is a it's the kind of plant that grows sort of horizontally and so it replicates itself this way and this way so you try to eradicate it and it's really hard like if I don't know if anyone has ever dealt with bamboo but bamboo is a rhizomatic plant and it sort of and you try to cut it off but like unless you completely get every bit of the root out it continues to just grow laterally and so I like this metaphor for social change 
instead of it being like some hierarchical tree, it's a sort of horizontal movement that's hard to eradicate. And so that's the idea behind Rizoma. Do the kids have fun? The students? Yeah. Yeah, they love it. So a couple of things. First of all, like when we say experiential learning, a lot of these kids have never done anything kind of like physical thing in their lives. So they don't really know what to expect. Also, Uruguay is like such a like not no, not well-known country or place. So nobody comes in with ex- expectations like they would studying abroad in like Italy or whatever. They just don't really know what to expect. So that's really great because I think actually weirdly in our postmodern world, traveling people will like in the Instagramification of traveling, they'll like expect something. And then basically they'll stand in front of the Trebi fountain and take a picture. And that's like, okay, I did that thing. And so not expecting opens up the space of like anything can happen, spontaneity. Like I don't know what this is and I'm just like letting it come at me. So this, I like that and the students like that. And then about halfway through the week, they're like, you know, they're just asking a bunch of questions. Like, what is going on? Like, why are these people doing this? Like, why aren't they just using combines? And, you know, like they're just trying to grapple with it. But then by the end, the Uruguayans that we work with, they're like part of our community. They're our friends. Our kids are friends with each other. And so by the end of the week, we have this big like cookout, asado, and everyone who we work with knows each other. And then they all are super friendly with the students who come and like the students by the end of just like the super heartwarming experience. Like I helped these people. I learned a lot. Like they learned from me. Like we had lots of moments of cultural miscommunication. Like always somebody inevitably turns on a bidet and it shoots them in the face because they're not used to bidet, like that kind of thing. You know, no, but somebody doesn't know how to drink the mate, which is a kind of tea they they drink there. Like somebody does something awkward and everybody laughs at them. You have these memories. And then by the end, everyone's like eating together and trying to communicate like sometimes without the ability to speak Spanish. And yeah, I think the students always leave and we always ask them for evaluations after and they say like, oh, this is like totally life changing. We had one group, we have one of the community partners who's a tattoo artist and like 11 out of 15 kids got tattoos on the trip that were like something related to Uruguay. I was like, you're going to have this forever. So yeah, they, they like it. Well, that's also my standard for like, if you're getting a tattoo, then you know it's Yeah, good. right. Exactly. They like, we, we taught, we taught the one girl S-lo-ki means like, ah, oh, it is what it is. Like, let it go, you know, and she got S-lo-ki tattooed after she just learned that. I was like, oh my God, this is so intense. Yeah. I mean, we like, we on this call, I think already share the values of all this stuff we're talking about. But to me, I think if you want other people to get involved, you have to be thinking all the time, like, how can I make this fun for them? Like same with the kids, right? Like if, if other people are having fun with the kids and it's now they're, now they're kind of absorbing that value and seeing why it's important. Totally. And what really goes through a lot of my work is I just genuinely think people like making things. They like doing things with their hands as a way to get to know one another. Not like oppressive amounts of work, but like they like to, you know, plant some trees. And then at the end of the day, they're looking at these trees like, wow, we did this. Like we did this together. And, you know, and somebody was enthusiastic and grateful for the help. It's a recipe for success. It just works. Yeah. Ashley on the record supports child labor. I love it. <laughs> yes, I do. 100%. <laughs> so the number one movie on Netflix right now is, as we're recording, is Leave the World Behind. Have you guys seen it? Yes, I've seen it. So yep. yeah, Grin, basically the plot, I won't spoil it, but like the world starts ending and maybe it's because of an evil cabal or maybe it's because of foreign actors I'll, I'll let you and it's good you should you should check it out it's kind of it's got some cool like storytelling convention breaking uh anyway but like 
in the movie, some of the winners are the preppers, the folks who have prepared already for this kind of scenario. And Ashley, you've hinted on this call and, and also across Twitter that you know you, you yourself are, are somewhat of a prepper. And I like have thought about prepping, but have not really done anything of the sort. You know, maybe I should. Maybe you'll convince me I, I really should. But if I were to like pick one thing to really focus on, it would be like have a great relationship with like my local community and, and neighbors such that we can team up. How do you think about prepping? Should people think about prepping? You host a podcast called Doomer Optimism. So like in that context, share a little bit more about how you think about the end of the world. Yeah. So, okay. So I am actually writing a book about prepping right now. So this is kind of my wheelhouse. I'm teaming up with a guy named Chris Ellis. He is a colonel in the U.S. Army who's in charge of basically all of North America at this uh, facility, NORAD, like basically disaster preparedness. And he went to Cornell and got his PhD there, focusing on disaster preparedness and we're turning his PhD into the book. And basically there's like five different types of preppers in his analysis and you know, there's like homesteaders, there's religious people who think like the second coming is coming, there's the gun nuts, there's the bunker guys. And then there's also like the tech. Like just recently, I think it came out, Zuckerberg is building some underground layer somewhere to be prepared. And actually a lot of super wealthy millionaires and billionaires have compounds. But the way we think about it, Chris and I both, is first of all, like there's this idea called the long emergency. It's like John Michael Greer, James Howard Kunstler, these kind of like peak oil prepper type authors basically argue that like it challenges with complex systems on, you know, if we're on the far side of a civilizational decline, they don't come like all of a sudden typically like they did in that movie because that makes for good drama. But typically it's like, you know, right now in the Northeast, the power has been out for like three, four four days in a lot of rural areas. Right now, that's happening in Maine. And what do you do when the power right is? Now. Oh, you are, and you have power. Oh, the generator. Oh, you have a generator. Okay, so here we go. So how do you get electricity? How do you keep your family warm in the winter? And it's like this stair step where maybe systems you thought you could rely on aren't reliable necessarily all the time. So be prepared for those periods of time. But then the other thing, Besides the basics is Chris Ellis, the, my co-author, says, people say like, what should we get? What should you get? What's the number one thing you should get? And he always says, which is so cute, a dining room table to sit around with your neighbors and invite your neighbors over to dinner. This is the most important tool, but by far, you can get as many supplies as possible. They're going to last you a finite amount of time. Relationships, neighbors, together, you're much stronger. And so that was my critique of this prepper movie is that the prepper's sort of seen as like, I'm taking care of my own attitude. And me and Chris are like, you know, a lot of preppers, people who take it seriously, primarily focus on relationship building, secondarily focus on like having antibiotics and, you know, a life straw and a generator and stuff like that. So that's the way I think about it too. So I think like the, the promise of thinking locally and not just no offense with your digital nomad tech friends who probably aren't that skilled with local people who like know how to get things, how things work locally, like their local ecology and that kind of thing. I think this is why I, I preach that it's not just to be be a nice neighbor because it's the kindness of your heart. Like it's smart to do. It's smart, it's thoughtful. It's like, it's very resilient and it will just, yeah, make everything easier. This is like the Joseph Heinrich type of prepper, right? Like 
his theory is that it's not that like humans are so smart, it's culture. Culture is what makes it special. Yeah. And you know, you put you put a bunch of really smart people on an island and they'll just die off in places where people live for hundreds of years and they just don't know how to do it. Exactly. So yeah, to me to me that's a super interesting thing. And then I'm super interested in like because I, I also taught this homesteading class where Chris came and talked and people always ask him like what's what's your biggest fear? And and so similarly to the dining room table comment, his biggest fear is like social unrest in the sense of like you know demonizing your neighbor type stuff which really makes things cascade super quickly and any kind of resource limitation you're gonna first you know like fight the people who are closest to you if you see them as you know the other or whatever and so just i just think there's so much infinite upside to like building out those neighborly civil society networks not just like knowledge sharing but yeah i mean it's both the right thing to do and the smart thing to do i think awesome thank you one thing that grin and i a few months ago when we were starting to do the initial brainstorm for what a a neighborhood for families might look like grin and i had at least asynchronously in in notion a little bit of a a disagreement that we've, we've never talked about it which is grin was more of the opinion that when considering schooling for this neighborhood for families that we should do it all ourselves. And I was making the case that we should like augment a like local school system with our own curriculum at the neighborhood for families. So Grant, I'm curious, you know, for you to talk about that also, but then like for Ashley, I'd just love to hear from you, like what are the different orientations that one can consider when thinking about building out a homeschooling programming and what are the advantages to each? So maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Ashley, and then Gren, I'll get your immediate reaction. Yes. Okay. So this is actually some, something I haven't spoken about publicly too much yet, but I am both an advocate of homeschooling and public, or just, you know, not in the homeschooling, but public or institutional schooling or private schooling, whatever. Just like I think people's optimism can be diverse, I think people's need for schooling based on their family situation can be completely diverse and still be successful. Like, I don't think that there should be one solution for any of the schooling question. My kids for a while went to the local Uruguayan school, which was like a very limited hours. And then we supplemented at home. And that was the homeschooling I did, which was like a sort of supplemental to their school, which their school wasn't great academically, but they got to be fluent in Spanish and they got to make friends, which is what I think was really cool and important being foreigners in, you know, another country. When I taught a homeschooling class or organized it, when I organize these classes, I'm not the one teaching them all. I'm bringing in experts on certain topics and then having them lecture on a certain topic. Same with home economics. And for the homeschooling, I talked to four different people. One of them was actually Chris Ellis's wife, Kim Ellis, the the proper guy. She did what I would call traditional schooling at home. So she like did workbooks and textbooks and it's like everything you would do at school. She took all that and she did it at home. And the benefit to that is get one-on-one attention from your mom, you know, who's like paying attention to what you're actually learning and able to keep up with your own speed, mom or dad. And I talked to somebody who did unschooling, radical unschooling, which is basically like, we're not going to have a set curriculum. We're just going to follow what the child seems interested in. If they're interested in things, what we really want to cultivate is a curiosity for learning, lifelong learning. So that's the, the philosophy there. And they just kind of like, you know, follow what the kid is interested in and, and then kind of like supplement it or provide some more information 
the downside of that is sort of like, well, what if the kid just wants to play video games all day? And then the parents say, well, then that's fine. Then they're learning something from the video games and eventually they'll move on from it. And so like, there's all this like, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is very experimental and there's not like a ton of data on it. And it's just sort of like, well, learn the stuff eventually, you know, they're not going to get to adulthood without learning to read. Like they'll want to learn to read because they're going to want to be able to communicate that kind of stuff. So there's not a lot of data on like the outcomes for a lot of these things, but homeschoolers in general in the aggregate tend to do better overall than the mean traditional school. But of course, it's just because they've got, you know, typically talking like a sociologist, they've got parents who have enough wealth that they have enough time to dedicate a parent to schooling. So there's like, it's hard to pull out the actual cause. And we talked to somebody who does something called Charlotte Mason, which is like a home-focused homeschooling where they teach the kids like baking and handicrafts. And it's like a little bit religious based. So they learn like religious hymns and folk hymns. And I just feel like it's so cozy. Like it's such a cozy homeschooling curriculum. And you can pick and choose any of these things, obviously. We didn't talk to somebody who does this, but there's something called classical school where people like teach Greek and Latin and they have this like trivium and the first thing is focused on rhetoric and the next thing I forget, like there's like these stages that go along with the age groups. And then we talked to somebody who was like obviously a super intelligent woman who taught her kids on something called project-based learning. And basically like the kids would take on a project. They'd be like, I'm going to code my own video game. And then they would be like, I'm going to just take these MIT classes as like an eight-year-old. And okay, well, yeah, that works for you because your kids are obviously like super geniuses. You know, you have to like figure out what works for you and your family. And she was like, the outcomes are just so cool. Like they're making these video games. They're like winning these contests relative to these adults. And they're just sitting here at home and they get so much curiosity and so much like gumption to like do this stuff themselves. So anyways, I just feel like there's a lot of really cool models out there. I feel like to each their own with regard to schooling. But I also see, I'll just say this briefly, I also see kind of an importance in, I think this generally, if you think we're on a civilizational decline, a lot of people think like, oh man, civilizational, like there's so many challenges in civilization right now. Like these institutions are failing and therefore we need to just completely pull out of them. And I have come around recently, only in the past year, to the idea that it is really hard to recreate these institutions well. Even when they're not working perfectly well, they still have so much institutional resources and momentum that's going to be better than anything that you can make from scratch. It just is. And so thinking about that practically, like sometimes it is worth it to try to get into an already existing institution if it's not totally broken to to get involved and to fix it rather than trying to start from scratch because i've seen a lot of people like try to start schools from scratch and then all the parents are fighting about like governance and the treasury and uh, how do we spend the money and like it's taking so much energy to try to rethink all of that stuff from scratch than it would to just show up at the local school council and like flex your muscles as a parent and like this is what i want to see in the school and like okay, well, the institution's already in existence. Like, you could actually maybe have more power that way. So anyways, there's lots of different philosophical approaches to schooling, and I'm I'm cool with all of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I wish I remembered now, Jackson, like what was the argument that we had? It was just a notion doc commenting on, should we like join an existing institution or, or teach everything ourselves? Gotcha. Did I say we shouldn't join an existing one? Because I'm not like... I'm not against it. I'm mostly saying we could teach everything ourselves. I don't know about which we should. It really depends on 
what the institution's like. Right. Yeah. I don't think it wasn't a very formal, like deciding <laughs> forever. Just, yeah. it was, it was an early doc. Yeah. No worries. But how do you, how do you react to everything Ashley says? Yeah. I don't know as much about education as Ashley does. I mostly have like my opinions and when I watch my kids, which is some sort of mix between like project-based learning and the the Uruguay school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I like all of those. I used to be more a fan of like complete unschooling. I'm less a fan of it now, but I want there to be like some element of that. Obviously, I think following the kids' curiosity is very important, but I no longer think the answer is like set them loose and they'll be fine. I do. Well, it can work when there are, which I think it kind of does work in the Uruguay system, right? You are kind of like setting them loose, but also there are real physical constraints like hey we need to feed ourselves and we need to build some houses so like you can do whatever you want but also you're going to be in a really bad situation if you don't take care of yourself so like now we do the harvest now we like get together so that kind of creates the natural system whereas if you did it you know where i live in boston it's like well there's the supermarket and there's the house and there's whatever so there's no actual needs for you to try and figure out and so that's where i do think the project-based learning stuff is really cool like my my daughter last week, she's going to be seven in like two months. She opened a store online. She makes jewelry and she like sells them online. I do it with her. It's really cool. And like, you know, I feel very proud that she's doing this, but it's like, and yeah, she's, she's very curious. She's like, how do I do it? Like, will people come? Will they be my neighbors? Do I know them? How much will I charge them? She like wants to buy this Lego set and she's like putting, doing it. So to me, that's a project that she's taking on and learning a lot from, but also she goes to a school where there are teachers and they teach her. And it's not like we're totally doing it ourselves. I don't think I would do a good job if I was just in charge of her education, mostly because like I don't have the time to devote to it. And also because I don't know what I'm doing. I have like my crazy ideas, but who knows? So yeah, I'm with you. Like I think a mix of all of these things are great and different, you know, different people have different needs. Different people have different abilities to provide for their kid. Like, you know, if I had millions of dollars, maybe I would do something different. If I had no money, maybe I'd do something different. Um, I would just say if I have millions of if I had millions of dollars, I probably would do some kind of private tutors like the private tutor is like what rich people have done in the past. And it's just it's such an amazing model, like just teach my kid French and just sit with them one on one. And you're the expert and you come in and like you teach them Latin and teach them archery or, te- you know, like because the parent isn't necessarily able to teach some of those more advanced subjects. But obviously, most people cannot do something like that. And so it's just like cobbling together wait would you really do that isn't that you opting out of all the local institutions if i were super wealthy and i was just like full full on a hundred percent leaning toward legacy supremacy and like my kids being like elites continuing to be elites i'm not an elite now so therefore i'm not able to continue that heritage if i were an elite i would be like this is what we're doing you know you're learning all this stuff you're going to be a world leader I don't really want that for my kids. I'm a middle class person. I want them to have like a happy life that's free of worries about basic providing for themselves. So when I think about legacy, I'm like, I want them to have this land to inherit, homes to inherit, like a functional home that they could raise a family in. I just want them to be able to provide for themselves and be curious and interested. You also need to think what kind of adulthood do you actually want for your kids? And then how does the schooling line up with that? Like, I I just think a lot of people should be more agentic in general think intentionally like what do you actually want out of your schooling for your kids what do you want out of your community what do you want out of your life and then that determines like how you spend your time basically the private tutor thing is where i think tech really does democratize a lot because 
just for me going into chat GPT and like try to go deep on a subject I can. And obviously like there's some pitfalls and things to be aware of in doing that. But I imagine that synthesis and a number of other tools being built natively for AI tutors and kids are going to be incredible. If we had more time, I'd, I'd be curious, Grin, I'm, I'm sure you've tried some already, but we're approaching close. Ashley, I know you got to go. So is there anywhere you'd like to send our audience? What what should they check out? You've, you've got a lot going on. So how should we direct them? Yeah. I mean, follow me on Twitter. That's at Rizola School. I post most of the stuff I've got going on over there, including the book and whatever kind of little writing pieces I come up with. And I am curious to maybe have more in-person events. You guys are so much further along and like organizing things because all the doer optimists are like trying to just like scrape by in their homesteads and their small farms. Like no one has extra time to like dedicate to building the kind of infrastructure you guys have. I, we really need something like that because a lot of people have been asking like, how can they find their other doer optimists, you know, people doing this kind of like ecological stewardship and homeschooling and thinking in the way that we are and we haven't yet come up with a solution. So we're working on that. Some people have some ideas, but follow me on Twitter and then follow along if I can come up with anything. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's some stuff we can do together. Do you have a, a crypto wallet, Ashley? I do. I do. We'll send you some cabin so you can start getting involved on okay. the, the governance front and dip your toes in the water. But thank you so much for coming on the show. We might have to do another episode some point in the future because there's so much we still didn't get to that uh, I'm excited to learn from you on. So thanks for joining and uh, shout out to all the, the new Doomer Optimism listeners as well. Come check out cabin in, in Discord when you get the chance. Yep. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is awesome.